This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. Thanks for joining us. And now here's the podcast. Welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by BridgeBio, a biotech company that works on developing treatments for rare diseases. At On Rare, we explore what it's like to live with a rare disease. On Rare gives us an opportunity to listen and learn from the true experts, people living with rare conditions. I'm your host, Mandy Rorig, a member of the patient advocacy team. I'm pleased to welcome you to the conversation between my colleague, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy at BridgeBio, and Veronica, mother of Brent, who lives with a rare disease called PCAN, which stands for Pantothenate Kinase-Associated Neurodegeneration. PCAN is a complex rare disease resulting from buildup of iron in the brain, causing uncontrolled movements, tremors, walking and balance challenges, as well as cognitive changes. PCAN is one of the NBIA, or neurodegeneration with brain iron accumulation disorders. PCAN has no treatment or cure. Hello, David. Hi, Mandy. So nice to uh, be talking with you again on the podcast. I'm glad to see you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we had the pleasure of meeting Veronica and Brent some time ago. Yeah, she came to a patient day. Yeah, and they are lovely, and uh, their story is really compelling, so... It's great to be able to welcome them on the podcast. But first, we like to get some background on the condition that we're talking about in our interviews. And I'm grateful that my colleague and friend, Mallory Harden, is with us to explain PCAN. Mallory is the Director of Business and Operations for COA, which is a bridge bio company working on a treatment. She's an expert in PCAN, and she's uh, great at explaining complex conditions. So thanks, Mandy, and welcome, Mallory. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, PCAN is just a very rare condition, and most people have probably never heard of it. So let's start at the beginning. What is PCAN? How does it affect people who have that condition? And why is it that some people develop PCAN and others don't? So PCAN, it's a neurodegenerative disease caused by a defect in an enzyme that we have normally in our bodies as a result of that defect, iron begins to build up in that part of the brain. And the clinical symptoms that result from that are typically a movement disorder that begins in early childhood. And unfortunately, the disease worsens over time. And many patients that are affected end up in a wheelchair um, and are unable to walk. So that's you know the basis of PCAN. Mm-hmm. What causes the defect in the enzyme? There are three human pantothenate kinase enzymes Mm -hmm. that we have normally, and PCAN affects one of those. There's nothing that causes it environmentally Mm -hmm. or anything. It's something that individuals are born Mm -hmm. with. And pantothenate kinase has a a role for a, a person who does not have the genetic flaw or mutation. What does pantothenate kinase do in the body? So pantothenate kinase is a key enzyme in the CoA pathway, and CoA is a part of many processes within our body. And so this pantothenate kinase 2 is part of that pathway. So if I could simplify it and correct me, 
pantothenate kinase is an enzyme and there's a flaw in this particular enzyme. It's like a whole system, a mistake or flaw or error in any part of that system could cause an illness. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, that's correct. And some genetic conditions are inherited, others uh, just happen. And is this... This is an inherited genetic condition. Pecan, it's an autosomal recessive disease. Mm -hmm. So the parents of an individual with pecan each carry one copy of the mutated gene, um, but typically the parents would not show signs and symptoms of the condition. Mallory, you and I have met Veronica in the past and in fact met her son Brent. And we know that uh, Brent's story is that he exhibited really normal development until around eight or nine. Is that typical for kids with pecan that they don't start showing the symptoms until, I guess you'd call that middle childhood? It can be. Some individuals exhibit signs as early as around age five or six. That's typically the earliest that it's diagnosed. And then some individuals with pecan don't manifest symptoms until they're older. Pecan has been divided into classic pecan, have those early symptoms. And then the individuals that have symptoms later in life, maybe in their teens, are sometimes called atypical. So typically, a child may start becoming symptomatic anywhere between five or six and uh, later on, perhaps even in the teenage years. What happens in the long run with people with pecan? Does pecan shorten the lifespan? What's expected and is the lifespan different for people with pecan? So David, it is a life-shortening condition. However, given the rarity of pecan, it's really difficult to say, you know, what the exact lifespan of an individual with pecan would be. From the data and the literature that we have, it looks to be in the 20s. But again, since it is so rare, there there is not a lot of data out there on how long these individuals are living. As I mentioned earlier, there are individuals with pecan that are diagnosed earlier in life, and sometimes those patients are called classic pecan patients. And those individuals often have a shorter lifespan than individuals that are diagnosed later. That group of individuals is sometimes called atypical, and it's oftentimes a little bit less severe disease than those classic pecan patients. I see. So the later in life that you start to show symptoms, the longer your lifespan is likely to be. Typically, yes. Um, pecan is a rare disease, but it is really a very rare disease. And I wonder if it's known how many people are living with pecan in the U.S. or in the world. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. There are very limited data out there. Mm -hmm. We think there are about a thousand patients in the United States that have pecan, so very rare. And we think in Europe, the number is similar to the U.S., so maybe around a thousand patients, but very limited data in pecan. And is it known what the cause of death usually is? Is it related to lack of mobility or is it something more directly related to the primary symptoms of pecan? The cause of death in the shortened lifespan is typically due to secondary effects. So nutrition-related um, immunodeficiencies, um, pneumonia. There are really a lot of tragic aspects about pecan. One is seeing your child develop normally and then lose ground developmentally. And then, of course, the shortened lifespan is just speaks to uh, the urgency of the need for treatment for this condition. We do. In PCAN, there have been some prior clinical trials, but this, this patient population and prognosis of the disease is dire for these patients, and they don't have any therapies. So it's really, really critical to develop therapies for PCAN. 
Well, thank you, Mallory. This is really helpful. We're very grateful for the work that you're doing, and uh, we wish your team great success as you develop a potential treatment for this condition. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to welcome Veronica to our podcast. How are you, Veronica? I'm doing well. Thank you, David. How about you? I'm good. Thank you. Veronica is the mother of Brent, a 30-year-old man living with Pecan. And Veronica, I would just like to start at the very beginning of your story with Brent. What was the first thing that you noticed that gave you this sense that maybe there's something different than your older son, Julian? Okay. Uh, well, the pregnancy was very normal. The delivery, um, he was a very active baby. We noticed that from uh, mm-hmm. the beginning. He started to walk when he was seven months old. Uh, wow. He was, by three years old, he was riding his bike without training wheels. We thought he was going to be an athlete. He was a swimmer. Uh, very, very active child climbing everywhere. But when he was about, I uh, would say, nine and a half, I started noticing that he was falling a lot. Um, mm. I would volunteer in his school, and I could yeah. see the difference between him and the other kids. And although Brent had been previously diagnosed as ADHD, and he, mm-hmm. he didn't know what walking was, uh, he run everywhere, <laughs> the beginning, we were just thinking that it was because he was always running, that he wasn't looking, he was tripping over things. But um, after a little while, mm-hmm. I started noticing that that's just couldn't be the explanation for all the frequent falls. So mm. I, the first thing I did is to go to the pediatrician, and he suggested that we do a um, comprehensive neuropsychological examination. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. were um, sent to Children's Hospital uh, in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And there were some findings of consistent with some attention deficits, some executive skills, a struggle there, nothing major, but they thought that whatever was causing the Mm -hmm. falls, they had to be neurological. Mm -hmm. And so from there, we were sent to a neurologist who ordered um, mm, an MRI. Veronica, mm. when you say executive skills, I think you're referring to uh, executive functioning, which in my yeah. mind relates to a person's organization. And it's common that uh, kids and adults with ADHD not only have attentional problems, but also have these sort of executive functioning problems. It has to do with planning as well. So all of those are, are skills that help us get tasks done. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I didn't even use the correct term because it's executive functioning, but it was that. For Brent, it was mostly the planning and prioritizing. Like if he had a project at school that was due in three weeks, he had the urge that he needed to complete it by tomorrow because he couldn't like plan, okay, I do the outline by this day and the first draft by this day, and then I do this. So the neuropsychological testing um, showed something consistent with ADHD and problems with executive functioning, but wasn't the answer to his, his falling. So what happened Exactly. Next? 
We went to see the neurologist. I described how he was falling because it wasn't just the frequency of the falls, but it was also odd to me mm -hmm. the way that he would fall because most people would have the reflex to try to break the fall. Yeah. And I would describe him as falling like a tree. Like when you chop down a tree, he would just fall stiff mm -hmm. into the ground. He also had started doing some vocal tics. Sometimes there were some with a hand, but they would come and go. And sometimes he'll be mm -hmm. snapping the fingers. Sometimes it would be ba 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 ba, and he would be repeating the beginning mm -hmm. of sentences several times before he could say what he wanted to say. And the neurologist mm -hmm. said, "Well, could be Tourette." But we could not diagnose that after a year, so we're just going to keep an eye mm. on it. Mm. Um, and then if this takes continue, then we can make an official diagnosis. In mm. the meantime, for this falls, we can do some PT. And we were mm. um, sent off. Uh, but when I was, she was walking us to the waiting room, I mentioned to her, oh, and one more thing, when he laughs mm. very hard, he drools a little bit, but only when he's cracking up. And so she said, oh, okay, let's go back to the office. So we turn around on the hallway and we went back to her office. And at that point, then she wanted to order the MRI. Uh, my first thought that he had a tumor yeah. or something. And so she said it could be just a connection oh issue between the two hemispheres. Let's just do the MRI to discard any mm. other serious conditions. Yeah. I can imagine you're watching your son who, A, very active, really kind of an early walker, early bicycle rider, athletic, suddenly develop these falls, and then the kind of other changes in his vocalization. And I guess you were worried that this could be something really serious. I was. I, I always thinking cancer because I never knew that a child could have a degenerative disease mm. that was not even on my radar. Yeah. Um, so when we got the results, it was just devastating yeah. because the worst part was knowing that there was nothing that we could do. You know, <sighs> if, if yeah. you get like a cancer or something, sometimes there is chemo, there's some trials, there's surgery, yeah. there's... Yeah. things that maybe you could try but to be told that this is degenerative is progressive and that there's no going to be a cure on his lifetime yeah it was just devastating mm. so the neurologist after the mri told you those things that it's degenerative there's no treatment and because it's a rare disease there That's is it. no enough research so a cure in his lifetime mm. would be unrealistic Let's put it that way. Oh, gosh. And did the neurologist give it the name Pecan or? No, at the time she used Haller-Vorden-Spatz uh -huh. syndrome. And she also mentioned that the gene had been discovered a year before mm -hmm. by a team of researchers. Mm -hmm. uh, one was a doctor at UCSF and the other one was Dr. Hayflick's yes. lab. And so she scheduled me an appointment mm -hmm at UCSF so that we can talk to the researcher who actually discovered the gene. Yeah. And, and Veronica, I'd like to ask you to say the name that was given for the condition so everyone can really make it out. Haller-Worden-Spatz 
syndrome. There were two researchers. The name was later changed because they were uh -huh. part of the Nazi medical and ethical uh, work. So it was later changed to okay. NBIA disorders and mm -hmm. his condition in particular, PCAN, right? Yes. And NBIA stands for? Neurodegeneration with brain iron accumulation. Yeah. So you're giving this kind of strange name, you're told that there's no hope for treatment or cure, although you're also told that the gene has been identified and there are researchers working on it, both at UCSF, that's University of California at San Francisco, and uh, Dr. Hayflick, who is in Portland, Oregon. Yes, and in reality, it was just one researcher mm -hmm. that is working on the disorder. That was Dr. Hayflick's mm -hmm. lab. I, I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering mm -hmm. the doctor at UCSF, but um, her was a more mm -hmm. limited scope. It was just, uh, she is not a long time researcher dedicated to PCAN. Yeah. So the yes, only one in the world working was actually the lab yeah. at OHSU. Oregon Health Science University. You had been really worried that this was something serious and you were told, yes, it's serious and there's no treatment or hope for treatment. And did the neurologist tell you what to expect in the future? Yes. Um, she said that each day would be worse than the day before. Yeah. She said that he would lose his ability to walk, that he would need a wheelchair, that eventually yeah. he would need a feeding tube, that he um, may go blind, and that he would have a lot of pain because they have this spasms and dystonia. Yeah. And not only he would lose his ability to communicate and enjoy and have a good quality of life, but he would also be in a lot of pain because medications cannot totally control the, the pain. As a parent, hearing that about your child, that must have been just a really difficult moment. Yeah. I mean, I still cry. This is back in 2003. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're given this just awful information about your son. It's scary. It's upsetting. It's absolutely not what any parent wants to hear. And even cancer, there would be something that might be a treatment. But in this case, the neurologist says there wasn't any hope for any treatment or cure. And, you know, we're hopeful that there will be. But where did you go from there? I mean, starting with that day, and was your husband Gaetano with you then? Did you have to tell him by yourself? And... What happened then? Uh, he, he came with me, and I remember on the card right there, he was saying, oh, I'm sure it's going to be okay. We're going to do something. And I said, no, because the neurologist said that if it was nothing, she would just let us know. Mm -hmm. And if it was something more serious, she would ask us to go in person, and we have to go in person, so yeah. something serious. Yeah. When we arrived, they had a social worker that was there for support. I have to say that even though the neurologist sounds as if she was very harsh, she said it in a very compassionate tone. She just mm. tried to mm -hmm. give us a very realistic picture. And I think she was just trying not to give us false hope. And yeah. my husband and I, we both were hugging and crying right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um she had ready uh, the patient yeah. advocacy group so that we can reach out to them for support. I didn't have to go looking on my own. That was handed to us. Um, she said that she would care yeah, for good. him and help us in this journey. Mm. 
But for us, it was devastating. It, it was yes. unbelievable. It, uh, it was shocking. We didn't know how we were going to act when we got home. Brent was little. Julian is only three and a half years apart. So we had two kids. How do we tell them? When mm -hmm. do we tell them? Um, it was just a, yeah. a nightmare. Yeah. The only thing that the neurologist said that shown some mm -hmm. improvement was giving patients vitamin B5. And I remember stopping by Walgreens before coming home from the hospital and to start giving it to him right away. And we couldn't find it. We mm -hmm. were asking for vitamin B5 and we couldn't find it. And we were looking, we stopped at different pharmacies and we couldn't find it. And it was so frustrating because that was the only thing that it could have <sighs> like a, maybe a 0.5% improvement mm. to help. And we couldn't find that. Then we yeah. later find out that, mm. you know, you find it as pentatonic acid, mm -hmm. not as B5. <sighs> I mean, I'm wondering about how you did tell your sons, but maybe... First, we should hear, uh, perhaps you would talk to the geneticist at UCSF and talk to Dr. Hayflick. So did you do those things? or We, we did. We went uh, to see the doctor at UCSF. Uh, she was very mm -hmm. nice. She explained how they discovered the gene. I, I don't have a lot of recollection of what else she said. What I do recall is that when we did get to talk to the genetic counselor. It was very upsetting to me because she said more than one thing, but the only sentence that I recall is that she said, go home and take a lot of pictures. And I was so mad because mm. even though I knew that it was degenerative and there was nothing that we could do, it was like, no, I'm going to take pictures of my son. Yes, oh, I yeah. am. But I'm going to do whatever I can, whether it is to search, you mm -hmm. know, do fundraising to get money for research. But I'm going to do something. I'm not just going to go home and take pictures of myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we, took, we took Brent with us. They wanted to see him. What we told him at the time, it was that we knew now what was wrong, what was causing his falls. It was because there was some iron accumulation in the yeah. brain. We yeah. didn't use any names for disorders. We didn't say it was degenerative progressive. We said, this is what's causing the problems that you're having. Mm -hmm. They don't have a cure yet, but there are a couple of researchers. We're going to go visit one next week. So they're working on it. That's kind of like the attitude that we, we took. And that came from my husband, Gaetano. He said, I want us to try to keep a normal, happy life. I, I don't want us to be crying mm -hmm. all the time. I want us to enjoy the moment. Yeah. I, I don't want this house to be like it's already a funeral. Mm -hmm. No, it's just there's life. We're going to enjoy it and mm -hmm. we'll take it as it come. Um, how did Brent and Julian respond when you told them that it was understood why Brent was having the falls? Um, Brent took it. Uh, much better than Julian, probably um, due to the age. Mm -hmm. Although we tried to keep it very simple. My older son had a little bit of a hard time. I could say that he had a difficult teenage years. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was due to what was happening at home. Because all of a sudden, mm -hmm. the household started revolving around all the different therapies that Brent was trying. And I don't recall exactly, 
perhaps I told them a little bit more about Brent. And so it was a struggle. But surprisingly, Brent Uh took it fairly well. He took it as face value. Oh, okay, this is why it's happening. And they're looking for a cure. And even for maybe I would say a couple of years after that, he didn't progress that much. He was still running, Uh walking around, riding his bike. Uh So we tried to do a lot of outdoorsy stuff for him to enjoy. But once the trouble started to become more obvious, then Brent did start to struggle. He would cry and he would mm-hmm. want to be alone. Yeah. And eventually he would just fall asleep. And then by the time that he woke up, then he was over it and moving on. Yeah. He had those episodes throughout and we tried to look for some counseling support, but we just not successful. Uh-huh. We couldn't find someone who had the same yeah. philosophy. Uh, we tried like two or three different counselors and the idea that we mm-hmm. had just late tell them everything that it was going to happen, but we just couldn't see what yeah. would be the benefit for him to know that he was going to go blind and need a yeah. archaeotomy yeah. and a feeding tube and, and all that. Um, how old was Brent when he had those episodes where he really was struggling physically and then would cry? Uh, it was in junior high. 12, 13, 14. Yeah. yeah. And the first thing, we have to start using a helmet, like a bike helmet, because Mm -hmm. we fall a lot. Uh, Then a cane. He was really against the wheelchair, so we kind of pushed that off as far as we could until we didn't have a choice. When did he start to use a wheelchair? Also in junior high. So during those teenage years, he had a very rapid decline. Oh, really? Even did DBS surgery at the time to see if that would help to slow Mm -hmm. down the process. But um, eventually we we did have to get the wheelchair. Um, And DBS stands for deep brain stimulation. And that's sometimes helpful with uh, tremors and... uh, Dystonia. Dystonia. Um, So he was really fine until about nine, nine and a half. And then he continued to have a, I don't want to say mild, but relatively milder course for another few years and then there was a really fast decline Yes, and this is typical of this disorder where people will plateau for a few years and then suddenly and nobody really knows what triggers rapid decline and then you Mm -hmm. may hit another plateau it's just really unpredictable and it's very different from patient to patient um so he started to use a wheelchair still while he was in junior high. And how how was that for him and for the family? That's a pretty big change. Yes. Um, we were grateful because we really needed it. We had been putting mm. it off because we were kind of waiting for him to be ready. But it was one of those yeah. things like, oh, thank God, you know, we're finally able to do it. I was concerned because he didn't want it to take it to school, but he really needed it. And it was great because I talked to one of his teachers and he devised the plan. <laughs> and that day mm-hmm. we went and we had a special parking space. It actually happened to be right in front of Brent's first period class. And the teacher was very popular. He was chosen as the best teacher by the students, like I don't know how many years in a row. So all the kids loved this instructor. And Mm -hmm. so Brent's teacher came to the car and I brought the wheelchair down and he came and sat on the wheelchair and the other teacher that was in front came running. This was all set up already. (laughs) They're starting to do wheelies Mm -hmm. and one was pushing the other and Brent was cracking Mm -hmm. up. He was still in the van and he was laughing and all the kids in his class were laughing. 
And then there were the teachers that started switching and one was sitting and the other one was pushing. <laughs> and after that, then they're done. Mm -hmm. So they came and, you know, Brent sat down and that was it. And wow. then the kids were like, I want to push him. I want to push him. <laughs> and then after that, it was okay. Brent had this thing where he would resist things. and But then it seems like he would get over it quickly. And then it was no longer yeah, an issue after yeah. that. It's so heartwarming to hear that his teachers and his classmates participated in helping Brent feel better about using the wheelchair and making it special. And That transition, yeah. yes. And it's also, you know, his spirit of resisting, although I'm sure it caused problems in the family, but it's the kind of he wanted to continue to be as independent as possible. And, yes, yes. You know, that's a good thing. And sometimes it's seen as a problem, but in my mind, it's consistent with how you and your family have dealt with this as you've tried to do as much as possible for as long as you can and not just taking pictures to remember a time in the past, but to really focus on the present and the future and do everything that you can do. Yes, yes. Of course, high school is another challenging time in life. And what was that like for him and for the family? Um, it was... A great experience, actually. Brent wanted to go to the high school where his friends were going to. He had an IEP. Mm -hmm. And the school um, was thinking that maybe he should go to a different school that had a better program for severely handicapped children. He would have more support there. But he was adamant that he wanted to go with his friends. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that was considered was the fact that he may lose his speech. Yeah. The district thought yeah. that the other school would give him better support. But we said, no, you know, let's just have him go to the school mm -hmm. that he's supposed to with his friends. And if that happens, you know, we'll deal mm -hmm. with it. If he needs to change schools later, we'll do it. And they gave him one-on-one -on -one aid for high school that was with him the entire time, taking notes for him and pushing him around because he didn't want a power wheelchair. He accepted the manual, but he mm. also didn't have the strength to push himself around campus so mm -hmm. and it was great he you know he went with the same mm -hmm. kids from junior high so everybody mm -hmm. knew him and in fact you know the teachers were telling me he's one of the most popular guys in the school <laughs> and it's a big school <laughs> his class were like 800 uh, so everybody yeah. knew him on campus and everybody was nice and he had his days you know i'm not gonna say that he didn't have difficult yeah. days but it was a great experience and he has very fond memories and of those years yeah. in high school yeah. so it's another example of you know brent resisting that he's kind of fought back against the effects of the illness and to keep himself as much as possible on his expected developmental path can i add one more thing because I'm very proud of this, but one of the concerns was that he would lose his speech and those surprises that life has in store for you, sometimes they're bad, but sometimes they're good. He wow. ended up giving one of the valedictorian speeches when he graduated from high school. Uh, yeah. So what a turn of events. <laughs> so he fought back against... Uh, having a program designed around his disability and he landed up with a program that emphasized his ability, which is really beautiful. Yes. I never thought about it that way, but that is just exactly yeah. what happened. So whenever we meet someone who seems to be resisting, we should give it more respect <laughs> <laughs> and know that they have some wisdom behind their resistance too. Yes. 
by then, when he wanted to go to high school, by then we already knew that we were just going to do what he wanted. We had learned along the way that we're just going to follow his lead and support him. <laughs> and, you know, there was a lot that he probably wanted that he couldn't do. So the things that he wanted that he could do, why shouldn't he be able to do those things? So that, that was also what we were thinking. Well, he can and what he can do, let him have the power yeah, of choice. Yeah, very, very wise parents there. I have to say. And he went on to study beyond high school, am I right? He did. He wanted to do the gelato. I traveled with him to North Carolina. They have an instructor coming all the way from Italy that teaches gelato making. And we did an intensive course there for a week. And then after that, he went to the community college and he obtained a certificate in small business administration. And then the idea was to start his own gelato business, but we ran into some problems. Uh, we thought that we could rent a commercial kitchen, but there is an exception for frozen desserts. So that was something that we mm -hmm. had not foreseen. So he went back to the community college and he obtained a second Mm -hmm. certificate mm -hmm. for marketing just to get busy while we were trying to figure things out and then he started to do the gelato but as catering oh, wow. and selling them on friends mm -hmm. and stuff like that and that's what he was yeah. doing until 2020 <laughs> and everything is going to be on hold <laughs> uh, so let me first say that i've tasted this gelato and it's fabulous brent's oh, gelato so this is not a hobby this is fabulous product and just wonderful gelato. How did the idea to make gelato get started? Where did this come from? Well, when he was, I don't know if it was high school or junior high, but he said he wanted to be a chef. And so I was talking to him and said, well, you know, while we still don't have a cure and you're having all these issues with controlling the mm. hands, I think that would be kind of dangerous because as a chef, you need to deal with knives and pots of boiling water and hot oil. I think, you know, maybe we could try to find something within the culinary arts that it's a mm -hmm. little bit uh, safer. So we were just paying attention. Yeah. And then one time it occurred to me, what about gelato? Because I thought, well, even if it's fruit, we need to cut, you know, he could have an assistant mm -hmm. helping him. Once you have the prepping, <laughs> then it's just using yes. the machines that does it for you, right? Of course, he was a big gelato fan himself, so yeah, that's and and so then we look for where he could do the training. Oh wow! So he wanted to be a chef, but a lot of the work of chefs are very dangerous for people who have no physical challenges whatsoever. I mean, uh, gelato seemed like a good option. It is a good example of making lemonade out of uh, lemons and something that people really love. Exactly. What's yeah. the name of it? So people will know. Oh, he named it after his favorite Italian flavor that is called bacio. Bacio. Bacio gelato. Okay. And bacio is chocolate with hazelnut, kind of like Nutella. Oh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it also means kiss in Italian. Okay, well, we'll all keep on the lookout for bacio gelato when we can in the Bay Area. Oh. <laughs> so... I know this is a hard question, but what are your thoughts about the future? What are Brent's thoughts about the future? What do you expect? Uh, we just plan for him to keep 
having as an independent life as he possibly can. Mm -hmm. uh, we are hopeful about the future because now there are trials that have happened, trials mm -hmm. that are in the horizon. So the outlook, it's a lot better than yeah. what it was back when he was first diagnosed. We know the science is moving forward. So we just continue trying to make the best and living life and enjoying as much as we can right now. And we're hopeful about the future. The main goal yeah. is for him to keep doing the things that he likes and for us mm -hmm. finding the way for him to be able to, to do it the best possible way. Yes. So to continue helping him live as fully and as independently as possible and to keep pushing and advocating and um, and now is a more hopeful time because there are trials taking place and trials on the horizon. Absolutely. And, you know, something since uh, Brandt's diagnosis when the neurologist said, well, it's too rare and nobody's going to work on it, treatment, it's wonderful to see that that has really changed and that some rare diseases have really gotten the attention and research that is desperately needed by families living with these conditions. So um, it is a much more hopeful time. Yes, it, it is very encouraging. In fact, Brent's uh, neurologist has put me in touch a couple of times with other families that were diagnosed with other disorders, not uh, PKM, yeah. but just to share our story of how the landscape changed when he was first diagnosed yeah. and now we're experiencing mm -hmm. this rebirth of, oh, you know, of research and possibilities. Yeah. So we yeah. don't have a definite cure yet, but you can see that we're moving closer. So. Um, you said uh, sometime back that at the very beginning, the neurologist gave you the name of the patient advocacy organization. And I wonder if I could just ask you to, uh, to talk about that for a bit and um, how, you know, your contact with them and your involvement with them? Yes, absolutely. The parent organization is called NBIA Disorders Association. Mm -hmm. So we went into the website. I contacted the president, uh, Patty Wood. She sent me mm -hmm. a big package in the mail with a whole bunch of newsletters that they had printed and information. Um, at the time, uh, it was before Facebook and other choices, but we did have through Genetic Alliance email and, and that was incredibly helpful for me because with a rare disease, you feel so isolated. Uh, mm -hmm. At the time when Brent was diagnosed, he was the only one in the Bay Area. And I felt every time I go to a doctor, when I go to school, when I take him to a therapy, if he goes to the ER because he needs to stitches, I need to explain and educate every professional on what the disease is. And so just being able to be with a group yeah. of people that know exactly what I'm talking about and they have experience and they were people who were farther along my journey, people like me, it was great support. It was very, very yes. therapeutic for yeah. me because yeah. I couldn't do anything for research. The first thing we did is like, okay, we want to help with the organization. And that was what we did. So we, we held a fundraiser. I started to volunteer doing things like writing little articles for the newsletter. I took over a family network yeah. list yeah. that I update and yes. I circulate among yes. the families, just little things here and there. And then eventually I joined the board and I was on the board yeah. for several years. Great. I just stepped down. So that was a way for me to kind of, you know, try to, to do, do something. something. Yes. 
I'm going to beat Mandy to the punch and give a plug for the NBIA Disorders Association and its president, Patty Wood, who I know, who's fabulous. Yeah, she's wonderful. Also, to emphasize how important the role of the organizations of the patient community are in rare diseases, because it's the only way that a biotech like BridgeBio could locate individuals living with in this case, PECAN, to learn more about it, or uh, when there is a clinical trial to inform people living with the condition about a clinical trial. There's no neurologist in the Bay Area that probably sees more than one or two people with PECAN. It's just very, very rare. So the role of the organizations of the patient and family community are so really, really important. Absolutely, yes. Um, Veronica, This has really been a wonderful, moving conversation. I am really appreciative of your time and your honesty and your willingness to share this story, which is both very difficult and also some very good things have happened out of your family's positive outlook and advocating for Brent and other people living with PCAM. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you for allowing me to share the story and continue to spread awareness about PCAM. David, I know you have had the privilege of meeting both Brent and Veronica before. I'm just curious, what was different about this conversation as compared to your previous interactions with them? Mandy, that's a really good question. I guess I would say that I was able to really focus more on Veronica and her experience. Veronica spoke about bringing up Brent with Brent listening. I think some of the story was probably hard for Brent to hear, and I remember asking him and uh, did not seem bothered by it. But I think it really made me focus on Veronica's experience more as a parent. What about Veronica's experience was most impactful to you? You know, I I try to put myself in the shoes of the people with whom we speak, Mandy, and it happens that my own son is around Brent's age. So this time when I spoke to Veronica, I was really taken by having a child who experiences normal development until age nine, and in fact, kind of advanced physical capabilities. He walked at seven months and what it must have been like for her and her husband to watch Brent's abilities decline at an age when, you know, nine-year-old boys are just on the up and up and doing more, doing better, doing faster. And I have to say, sorry, it is really heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. But somehow um, Veronica was able to find hope in a situation that felt hopeless at times. That's why you see such tremendous resilience and perseverance in Brent, because his family created this environment for him to thrive. I am so impressed by Veronica and her family because they have really supported Brent, who is significantly disabled, to do everything that he's wanted to do. He's He graduated high school. He attended community college. He attended a culinary program to learn how to make gelato. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has a gelato business and I've tasted his gelato. It's terrific. So, This is a family with incredible strength and such an example of resilience. I find a lot of hope in the face of hardship with this family, right? Like they never stopped trying despite people saying otherwise. 
Mandy, what you're saying is so important. Veronica and Brent and their family were not defeated, have never been defeated by Pecan. And I think that's why their story is so important to share. And he's a lovely young man. And he found a great joy in gelato making. When life gives you lemons, you uh, make lemon gelato. I like that. When life gives you lemons, you make lemon gelato. That's the takeaway. Right. Thanks to you, David, for this conversation with Veronica. Thank you to Dr. Harden for teaching us about Pecan. Thanks to our exceptional producer, Amy Brooks. To learn more about Pecan, visit the NBIA Disorders Association at nbiadisorders.org. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. Thanks for being with us today. I hope you'll join us for our next conversation on Rare. Rare.